You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Um, hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, I suppose the first thing you'll notice is that I'm not Professor Desmond O'Neill. Um, he's asked me to step in and chair the, um, this event for us today. Um, and so I hope to uh, be able to fill his shoes in, in well, I, I think I will be able to fill his shoes in, in a good way. Um, so uh, just to uh, introduce myself. So my name is Dimitrik Sidus, and I'm a research fellow here in Trinity College Dublin in Trinity House. Uh, which is a uh, which is a research center in the School of Engineering. I'm not an engineer myself, but um, Trinity House focuses on co-creation and the intersection between the built environment, health, well-being, inclusion, climate action, and sustainability. And I'm very happy to be here today to chair this session, um, the first session of the of the season for um, the medical and arts humanities. So this was founded in 2006. The, uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute is dedicated to advancing Trinity College Dublin's rich tradition of research excellence in the arts and humanities on an individual collaborative and interdisciplinary basis. Um, this medical and health humanities seminar is part of the longest running series of medical and health humanities seminars in any Irish university and an audio podcast of this seminar will be available in the near future for everyone to um, go back and re-listen to because I think today's session is going to be really, really interesting. Um, my job today is very simple. It's to set the table for our lecture and for our discussant. Uh, and I'm very delighted today to have with us Kimberly Campanello. Um, she is best known for Mother Baby Home, a 796-page visual poetry object. And there's a reader's edition that was published uh, by Zimzala in 2019. And also Sorry That You Were Not Moved, published in 2022, which is an interactive digital poetry publication produced in collaboration with Christodoros Macris and Fallow Media. She is an inaugural Markovich Award winner from Ireland's Department of Culture, Heritage, and the Geltuck and the Arts Council, and she represented the UK in Munich at the Klangfarben Text Visual Poetry for the 21st Century, a festival organized by the British Council, the National Poetry Library, and Lyric Cabinet. New poems have appeared in Granta, Poetry Review, Cambridge Literature Review, The Right Review, and Poetry Ireland Review. News, new, new prose features in Tolka and in some such stories. She was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's in 2021 at the age of 41 and was awarded a Developing Your Creative Practice grant by the Arts Council England to support her writing of chronic illness and disability. She is a professor of poetry at the University of Leeds. Um, today as well, after uh, Kimberly gives her uh, talk, we have Dr. Anna McDonough, who's a consultant geriatrician with expertise in movement disorders, and she will be the discussant for today's session. So I'm gonna pass it over to, to Professor Kimberly Campanello, who will read from a recent work on her experiences of chronic illness and disability and discuss her writing process and approach with reference to key touchstones, including Dante's, is it Acadia? Acadia. Oh. <laughs> Ashadia, Prowse Court Wall and Ill Objects, and Alison Kafer's Crypt Time. So, Kimberly, over to you. I'm delighted to have you here today and really excited for everyone to hear you um, do your lecture today. So, welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Demetra and Shelby and Des, for having me. This has been a brilliant um, thing to think about and to prepare uh, and to think about different audiences for 
um, the work I've been doing and the things that I've been thinking about. So as Demetra said, I'm a poetry professor, but I've been writing prose about poetry, <laughs> which seems to be the only prose I'm able to write. Um, so I, I thought that rather than beginning by talking, I'm just gonna begin with a poem, which was the poem that I first wrote um, whilst I was going through the diagnostic process, which um, if there, you know, any Parkinson's related folks know can be complicated, especially when you're young. So it, it took a while. It took a while to initially see a neurologist and then it took a long time to, it felt like an eternity to, um, to uh, finally get the diagnosis, which of course, um, you know, was diff was really difficult. So I suppose in this poem, it, it's very much written in that period um, and completed sort of within months of, of that um, period. So I think I'll just go ahead and read that. So it's in Granta. So if anybody's online and you want to um, Google it, uh, you'll be able to find it and you can follow along. So um, it's in Granta if you just Google moving nowhere here. And it has an epigraph from John Keats' uh, Ode to Psyche, um, which says, a rosy sanctuary will I dress with the wreathed trellis of a working brain. Moving nowhere here begins with shouting in sleep. I am naked on the carpet in a power stance, sensing an army nearby. I am charging the ghost hanging on the back of the door. I am trapped inside the shimmer of a spice cupboard, boxed into fetal position between jars filled with dried leaves. It continues in waking life with food and drink brought on trays for what seems like no reason. I must be propped on pillows to attempt anything at all other than dream. It continues with rarely, sometimes, or often feeling achingly ancient. I continue to await the perspective this feeling ought to bring. But I refuse teleological notions of progress, especially when what is meant by progression is me moving slowly or quickly into a state in which I cannot move or move with ease anywhere and everywhere on my own. That sounds to me like regression or like moving down a very screwy road on an old map. I am on my own and I am not having an emotional jag in which I remember something isn't circulating or being produced properly. Something that flows in what I used to still think was the very side of me. You see this something will not issue forth will not flow. I am avoiding technical language in the hope there might be some double multiple meaning to be felt here in the basics. Meaning the something that flows or in this case doesn't flow in the very sight of me, you. Technical language would allow you, me, to say not me, you, though I, you, could say not me, you, Yet, I'm afraid to say we are all progressing or regressing down a more or less screwy road found on a very old map until we are going nowhere. I promise you, he says, I am going nowhere regardless of this. I may not be able to swallow this or anything one day because of it. 
not jagging on my own. I am stacking some papers I have just printed. I am stacking them carefully and banging the stack's edge against the table to see how thick this book is becoming. I see it is not thick enough without this poem to bear the weight of this poem. I see that my hand is barely trembling. Something is flowing. And in this book, the eyes are confused throughout about what they know about it all. And by it all, I mean it all. Not simply the subject of this poem, which I fear is all you will forevermore read in the language I put down for you, simply because I am putting this subject down here in language now for one time and one time only. When this poem ends, it ends, goddammit. But of course, I know that's not how things, these things work. I know what I'm getting into and what you're getting out of it. And when this poem ends, I am here shaking still. I'm shopping for a wedding dress and one dress is called the X dress. It is named for the something that will not flow there at the very side of me. Do you have difficulty dressing yourself? Often, sometimes, never. I want to at least have good nails. I want to shake like a leaf wearing green polish on alternate nails and hot pink on the rest. In general, to live the best life, I have to be the boulder that the river flows around. Is that a cliche or is that something my counselor or trade union told me to say, am I a boulder or the boulder? Can I be the boulder if there are other boulders and who or what is the river? Is the real river I walk beside every day? I walk beside it now every day while I still can. Is this river flowing around me or is it accompanying me? I do not feel I am a boulder when I walk beside this river and often I have wished we, the river and I could hold each other's trembling hands and move together. Could I please call this river my river from now on? Feelings get stirred up based on conditions that I must identify and optimize. For instance, my foot in a shoe against the ground. I need to find the exact amount of feedback to my foot from shoe top to shoe bottom in relation to the type of surface. This feedback reminds my feet that we are here on Earth's surface for now, and it's perfectly okay, normal even, to keep on moving. You are still young, she says. You must train it while you can and hope to retain it. He continues to be impressed by the way I have thrown myself into activity. I am threatened physically by a jerk honking his horn, and when I try to snap back to quip and insist on respect, I find I am shaking maximally, full body shakes like I have never seen surface on myself or others, not even in war footage or that ecstatic dance class in Bristol, and a woman looking on says, you are okay, you need to calm down now, and I tell her what my problem really is. I can see why you'd be upset by that reaction, he says. People don't like to think about death and your movement problems move their thoughts toward death and suddenly you are like our dark mother, nurturing and bringing dissolution. Seeing your young body house all this makes it all the more blatant. Note that this is not a full account of my experience and bear in mind experiences differ from person to person. Not everyone suffers everything it is possible to suffer in time or ever. Could you write something for me, he says. And then he says, you may have difficulty writing. 
My writing is illegible and the words have become so very small, so very crowded on the page. My writing is building up a picture of what is wrong with me. I search for poets, definitely Diane de Prima, maybe Samuel Beckett, definitely his mother. The next time I see him, my written something is in his folder. It says I can write like this. He turns the page to the shimmering spiral I had concentrated hard and drawn. Each new person is always asking about the origin story of the very destruction that is happening at the side of me. There is a technical language that explains all this. I will not use it. Instead, I will say that with my flowing river, today I crossed the edge of a thunderstorm. I moved from pelting rain into shimmering sun, and it was like it has always been on the edge of storms I have seen and storms I know only in poems. Concentrated and hard, with something moving, often nowhere. Here, like a leaf flowing around a boulder, carried by trembling hands of water. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna not mute myself. I'm just gonna share my screen. Time to share my screen. Let's see what happens. I'm gonna close these doors because all these trucks keep driving a lot and I hope that you're not hearing that. But... Ah, that's better. So can I, I hope everybody can still hear me. It's really weird. It's, I haven't done one of these in a long time. And it, it, this is a bit odd um, to go back in time to when we used to do this all the time in a kind of ritual way. So what I thought I'd talk about is time, which I think you can probably tell from the poem I read is something that features quite a lot in Parkinson's and in specific ways, but um, in, in general, it, folk, it features a lot in illness. And we're always thinking about ways to mitigate certain things, to plan or not to plan or not to plan, to cancel or not to cancel, um, to spend time doing one thing so you can do a different thing the next day and then have all that be ruined. And it kind of brings all that to the fore. And that was something that I've been thinking about a lot. Funnily enough, I had to take my meds right when this talk began. <laughs> and that I had to take them just in time because otherwise different things happen. But then obviously if I have just taken my meds, certain things also happen, which are not the things that maybe I would want to have happen in the context of giving a seminar. So that's all happening <laughs> as we speak. And I think it's just worth you know, considering that. There's a project at the moment by um, Dr. Johnny Atchison um, in which he's working on getting just in time, medications just in time for people with Parkinson's. It's called just in time medications. and I really thought a lot about that because it feels like this, this phrase works in many ways when you're ill, doing something just in time, like just before something happens, just before something changes and just before whatever else goes wrong. But also if you don't get your meds just in time, then, then those things will compound and make other things less possible. So Demetra mentioned that I've been thinking a lot about Ashadia. And Ashadia is a medieval concept um, 
which is laterally translated as, as sloth, but at the time would have meant something like not caring about God enough or not caring about others, not caring about living a godly life, what, you know, and as defined in, you know, Dante's era. And that was Dante's sin. And um, I found that really interesting because another way to translate it is apathy. Excuse me. And um, apathy is one of the symptoms of Parkinson's. And it's one of the symptoms that I fear the most uh, is not caring. <laughs> How will you know? How, and then what will happen to you if that's the case? And, um, you know, I, I, I'm on many in many networks with folks with Parkinson's, but that doesn't mean I know know more about how to deal with exactly that because it's very difficult when you're dealing with it to talk about it and so i've been interested in translating dante from this kind of a uh, sort of a crypt perspective um but but actually i don't really have to do much to change it to make it work and actually um i think my perspective has brought us something out in what i've been doing as i've been translate i'm just translating dante for fun i know it sounds a bit off off kilter but this is the passage where he describes in the Inferno, the people who are in hell because of Ashadia. And to me, it's a, a complete description of what it's like to have Parkinson's. Um, so I'm just gonna read this bit. Feet fixed in clay and stilled water, I was pained even out in the sweet air, the sun makes gladder. Carrying inside myself that most feared uncaring gaze that downward pulls and worsens in deepening mud. I hack out my hymns. I can't spit out a single word in full. So of course there are many, many Parkinson's symptoms piled up in this little description of, of Ashadia, which is his metaphor for the punishment for those people. But equally um, this layering of, the, of not being able to speak, which is also a symptom of Parkinson's, but, but not being able to find the words for that experience. And so I, th I hope that you might've noticed that I'm trying to work with that fundamental, the fundamentals of language in these translations, but also in moving nowhere here. And of course, one of the reasons why is because I'm trying to figure out what is the self and where is the self in time and what does what is presupposed in Derridian terms by attempting to do that. <laughs> um, and because I come from the arts and humanities, I suppose if something happens to me, the first phase is like, well, what did what did Derrida do that would be relevant uh, to this question? So I certainly don't know if this translates to other other perspectives, but I think that that these these are this is at the fundamentals of, of chronic illness and disability. And Alison Kafer does talk about about um, time being in time, basically about um, about the things Heidegger was writing about and the things that, that Derrida was intervening in. And so I'm, I, I suppose the key questions I'm asking as I'm writing chronic illness and part of why I've been writing these short prose pieces from a third person perspective about the poet K is because I'm trying to ask these questions in a way uh, that unlike the diagnostic poem, which is in first person, obviously, as you noticed, is not in the context of that experience, but instead is trying to control the experience or trying to arrest that experience in language in a different way. So, you know, what is the self? When is the self? What is language? What is creativity? What is cre the creativity of the self? And how, how does all of this presuppose perhaps um, time, you know, time not 
time arresting itself in order to ask this question, which is what Derrida is picking up um, on Heidegger, Heidegger's being in time, but then to move us towards, hey, if this is all happening at the same time, then there are these other things, other people, other times, other pasts, presents, future, it's all happening as well. So the idea of the basis of philosophy itself, the basis of how maybe we think about ourselves is on shaky ground, which feels, again, very much like it feels to have Parkinson's. And as a result, I have been thinking a lot about nostalgia. Nostalgia, as Kafer says, for my past selves, the things I might have done, um, the ways I might have handled certain challenges, the ways I might have possibly even made bad decisions because I would have thrown myself at things that I just because I could. Um, and this, I love this idea of compulsory nostalgia, the, the lost able mind and body, the lost um, that, that perhaps never was, which of course makes me think of Proust um, and the, 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 the La Recherche de Temps Perdu, the lost time, wasted time, um, all the different ways that that's been translated and is suggestive. But of course, Proust is not uh, nostalgic. Proust is grappling with some of these very key questions and um, certainly was not, just to get it on the record, a hypochondriac. He actually um, he actually probably had a form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So if you go into PubMed, you can find out about Proust's likely diagnoses and how that would have influenced his life. And he also hung out a lot with Charcot and all the early neurologists in Paris. So coincidentally, one of my favorite authors is like right up on, you know, the early neurological um, scientific perspectives and um, is trying to account for that experience over 3000 pages and did everything and then died at 51. So, you know, as I, as I said with, with my friend, when I visited Proust's grave when I was 20, you know, we, we really need to get our shit together. Like, how are we gonna do this in time? And so I've, I, I've pulled a lot of these things that I've been thinking about, of course, as a poet, you don't work systematically. So those of you who are clinicians or, or research scientists, um, you know, the most systematic thing I can do is sort of get books out and put them on the floor and move from one to one. Um, but I've been thinking about all the different work that I connect with, and much of it has to do with time. And this is stuff that goes way back for me. So the famous poem by Garcia Lorca, where he's talking about this really precise moment of the death of Ignacio Sanchez Mejias. And he keeps saying, a las cinco de la tarde, eran las cinco en punto de la tarde. And he really is, you know, telling us this is when he was killed or this, you know, we're building up to when he was killed because at five in the afternoon, all of this is happening in preparation for the death. But it's an elegy and it starts with us knowing what's going to happen. And then he's saying, I refuse, I refuse to see it. And all of this um, interplay between the, the poet, the poet self, the way that we can project and, and, and move forward and backwards in time as writers, I think is for me anyway, in my experience of chronic illness is, is, is one of the great um, salves, I suppose, for it. And, and um, one of the great gifts of, of being able to think about things that I've already been thinking about, but in a very different way. Um, and I'm not glorifying illness by any means, but I mean to say, um, A, we need the arts and humanities and B, they, boy, are they handy for, for certain things um, on a personal level. And I think that we, we might forget that overall. And that's why we have these sorts of seminars. 
So I've also got this sense of Paul Ceylon's, it is time that the stone took the trouble to bloom, that unrest's heart started to beat. It's time for it to be time. It is time. Which to me is, as people with Parkinson's were told when we're diagnosed, well, don't worry, because there'll be a cure in five years. And don't worry, because you can get 10 good years out of your levodopa. Don't worry, uh, there will be something that will happen. But people have been told this for 30 years now. And so this, you know, I reread this poem and I'm reading it from that perspective now, but I'm also reading it from the perspective of um, what, what do we mean by it is time? It's time for it to be time. What do we mean by us? What do we mean by um, the rest was death and only death in the afternoon at five, right? I mean, we're surrounded by all of this and it becomes very destabilizing. And certainly when, when you are ill, the tendency is perhaps to cling for me anyway, to cling to the, to the present moment, which is what we're told. So in so many different um, kind of self-helpy contexts that, that by now I'm like, that sounds too much to me. Like, Oh, don't worry. Five years, 10 years, all of this. And I, and I actually just want to be told something that resembles what actual people think is going to happen. And that, that becomes quite frustrating. Um, the other point that I've been thinking a lot about is, is nostalgia and is that sense of when, one of the things that happens when you have Parkinson's, of course, is that you might have cognitive issues. You might have Parkinson's dementia. You might, um, you might begin with cognitive symptoms. And of course they tell you, if you begin with cognitive symptoms, that's bad. But if you begin with motor symptoms, that's good. If you That means you have brain or body or gut or whatever Parkinson's. And so they try to subtype you. They don't yet have really any different treatment protocols, um, at least um, significantly different. And um, that's really hard to think about. And so every time I hear the word time, I think about time. I think about degeneration. I think about moving down this um, path, this screwy road, and um, facing these things, but also whatever it is that we make, what will that be to me? And of course that's true of everyone, but I often think, well, if I make this poem and I pick it up and I'm in a different state because of my meds or because of this or because of that, what, you know, there's all these other pasts and these other possible futures in, in a Dridian sense, but also in a literal sense. And what do I do with that information? I have a photograph preserve your memories. They're all that's left you. Well, what if your memories aren't left you? So, you know, immediately you start questioning these things that I, you know, I remember listening to the song on a train on the way from Paris to the Ardennes where Arthur Rimbaud's manuscripts are kept and thinking, Oh, I'm really, I'm really doing it. But I don't have any pictures of that, fortunately. So I, so it isn't all that's left to me. Translation throws up so many of these questions. How do we translate time? How do we think about prepositions? Where are we? What time is it? Uh, and, and what does that mean for the self? And what that, does that mean for how we interact with others? So all the different ways that Proust's longtemps je me, je me suis couché de bonheur has been translated so many different times. And just like a la cinco en culto de la tarde, which I've tried to translate without using the word o'clock or afternoon, um, it is five o'clock in the afternoon, does not have a la cinco en punto de la tarde, or even five o'clock sharp. So 
the feel of time passing also is is contextually specific and i think one of the ways in which i've been throwing that up for myself is is through this translation of dante and through playing around with um making a kind of collage of time related concerns uh, as you can see this is just a sample of my kind of um um uh, book of quotations like we would have when we were teenagers and equally quotations about the self which feel very different again this was one of my favorite poems when i was sort of 18 19 robert creeley's the rain which has this refrain what am i to what am i to myself that must be remembered is insisted upon so often and so in the poem the speaker is very much kind of saying what a, i'm such a jerk i've like messed up this this kind of relationship this potential um sexual interaction by kind of being so forward in in the self and not being as open to the other as i might be and of course when i read this now i think of the multiple the multiple selves of, of illness what am i to myself that must be remembered and insist upon so often well maybe i don't need to remember the self maybe i don't need to remember the past self maybe that's not the point um, of, of any of this, or maybe I need to find a new way. And of course, all of this takes immense effort, but I think it's something that, um, something that I've learned to value at least creatively and, and thinking about, um, yeah, leaving a mark in relation to not saying it's me is, is part, is part of that process, which then ties to my, one of my favorite quotes of all time, which, you know, doesn't work grammatically, je et un autre, I is another, but the conjugation is in third person. And, you know, Humbo's saying this in a letter in 1871 when he himself is a teenager and he's working through a kind of radical poetics. But I keep returning to this quote in a way because it points away from the nostalgic view of the self, the keeping the photographs and the pictures, the taking or the not taking of the pictures the idealization of, of the artistic, um, of artistic creation as, as enduring. So if I think about Keats's Ode to Psyche, which I quote at the beginning, of course, he's doubting this all the time. He's, he's the quintessential poet of, you know, with, we will endure forever in art, but he's also the quintessential poet of, I don't know, I'm not so sure about that, um, which is something that I think I'm, continually finding and that's you know with Derrida would love that because of that of that contradiction within the texts of these of these authors so of course this 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 is a film of Derrida if you just google Derrida talking about the trace you get him talking about it in like about six minutes and it's about the clearest probably bit that you can find but um you know a, a report is something else whether it's the other so him drawing on Levinas or whether it's the other past, the other present, the things that I've talked about and the ways in which this, this throws into question um, how to account for chronic illness, whether it's your own or someone else's, the complexity of it, the length of it, um, the way in which you feel a sense of urgency in doing it. And that's another symptom of Parkinson's or of Parkinson's medications, uh, compulsive behaviors, something that people fear terribly much and experience. Um, and and that's that spectrum between, you know, apathy and ashadia, like actual clinical apathy and ashadia, the spectrum between urgency to do something, to carpe the diem, you know, all of these things, and compulsive behavior, 
you know, that, that spectrum, I think for clinicians must be really difficult to surmise. But for me, I'm constantly thinking, I'm an artist, I'm always somewhat on the edge of, of both of these things. And when am I going to get called out? And how might that affect my prescribing? And I think that, um, you know, having having frank discussions with people about the whole, the baggage that our perceptions around certain behaviors brings and the context in which they occur, I think is really important because, you know, certainly talking to friends with Parkinson's, it's it's not necessarily something that is in the forefront, mainly because so many health systems are under such pressure. So what the, I'm just going to read to you a bit from the poet K um, from Paradoxical Kinesia, which is um, in which the poet K is in a crypt in Paris, but you don't know that that's where she is, because one of the things that I'm trying to do at least is to pull us back from proper nouns, because for me, proper nouns often get us into a bit of trouble. But equally, I think when we're thinking of chronic illness, they're the things that we attempt to um, clear, at least for me, in my experience, I tend to clear away in order to have, I hate to say, a more general experience in order to get down the road. It doesn't matter to me what road it is. Have I gotten to the end of that road where I don't care what shop it is, but they might sell something I need. And can I get back up that hill or down that hill or over, over that um, barrier? Can I restart myself moving? And when you break away, um, when you break away and pull back on, on proper nouns, at least for me, it, it invokes um, that more basic sense of not storytelling, but of something to do with being and time, of something to do with uh, the trace of what is, is there in our experience, which is the trace of all of these interrelationships. Um, and it's just something that I've been experimenting with in order to, in order to do that. And um, so in, in this piece, I, it's in the, set in the crypt of Notre Dame de Paris, where they have um, Victor Hugo's exposition and they have the Roman ruins. So I'm just gonna read a bit of that. I won't read all of it. Tay attempts to walk normally and then limp dramatically through the exhibit. Her illness has decoupled brain from body when it comes to many things, especially walking. She appears drunk or threatening to the peace or vulnerable to attack like an animal that has been hit by a car. To walk, she deploys cues her physiotherapist taught her, which for a brief stretch can make her movement seem, if not feel, fluid. When tired, she tries consistent limping. An attempt to signify something intelligible is wrong, like an ankle sprain. Both approaches attract either no attention or some sympathy. She is unable to maintain either series of movements for very long. Kay often tells her writing students, not to spend precious language moving characters around. Unless the way a character moves is important, skip it. Let the reader assume they have moved based on what is around them and what they say and do. Kay thinks the way she moves now could be significant, but wonders how much weight this should be given in any story. She thinks, she thinks the miraculous qualities of even the simplest movements may well deserve language. 
She estimates how much space it would take up if done wholeheartedly. The, str the struggle past the school group, rubber boots squeaking at irregular intervals, a tremoring arm jammed under a backpack strap to hold it close, not for physical benefit, but for the comfort of others. So she, the character, can be with them. This being with others stands for something Kay can't quite imagine the writer conveying. In a dark side room, Kay finds herself on the edge of a fake river, its surface made reflective with lighting and clever use of perspective. The real ruins blend into wall paintings of the whole island, filled with buildings lit by flickering fires, their light emanating from bulbs set within holes punched into the wall. A sign explains that this was the site of the riverbank in ancient times. Back then, it would have been bustling with activity, mainly fishing, trade, and military. The land and river levels are higher now, which is why the ruins in Riverbank lie beneath the Cathedral Square, where earlier Kay saw tourists photographing cranes swinging historic oaks into place. A temporary sign on the edge of the building site explained the oaks were sourced from all over the country and are the same age the originals would have been nearly a thousand years ago. Kay shares the Riverbank room with a tall man in a thick blue coat. She wants to say something to the man about the strangeness of the room, how it is original and constructed at the same time, how it is uncanny, familiar, and extraordinary, a bit like she, the way she walks or the passage of time. In this room, it is always late evening. The stars have always just appeared. Kay and the man hear footsteps and laughter coming from concealed speakers. An approaching boat separates water from itself. The space feels intimate, like Kay and the man are the last survivors of a flood, fire, or disease, now stranded on an ancient riverbank made present. The man reads the explanation on the wall. Kay reads it again. The man walks along the riverbank. Kay trails behind, watching and listening to the thick blue coat respond to his movements. In the next room, groups of visitors cluster around glass cases containing posters and books. Captions explain the famous changes to the city almost 200 years ago. The tearing down of buildings in favor of the bright, fresh architecture and wide boulevards the city is known for today. Now these aspects are assumed to be quintessential and original and thus older than they are even though when they were built, the new architecture was itself reminiscent of other times and places. During this period of destruction and construction, the cathedral fell into further disrepair. Photographs from that time show its diminished state. At that point, the crypts ruins and the original riverbank remained unknown and inaccessible. They weren't found until around the year Kay's parents were born. The next glass case states that during this upheaval, an author wrote a book to convince people that the cathedral and buildings like it should be saved. To do this, the author created a character who was rejected by society and considered monstrous due to his physical problems. The author placed this character in a story set hundreds of years before the architectural cataclysm, during a period when the cathedral was important and fully valued. The plot moves toward the death of several characters after accumulated misunderstandings based on false assumptions 
about the intentions and experiences of others. The character came to symbolize the decrepit and disavowed cathedral as it was then viewed. Readers connected with the character. Thus, Our Lady and the island itself were saved. As were the original riverbank and the ruins and the crypt where the visitors were standing today, even though the ruins were only discovered during the relatively recent construction of a car park. Kay imagines her illness and way of walking and moving being used in a story to save a national treasure. She wonders what, if anything, her experiences correspond to and why such correspondences can be so convincing. She leaves the crypt and crosses the river onto the mainland, entering one of the city's last conclaves of narrow streets and haphazard buildings preserved along with the cathedral by the book and its character. On a recent phone call with another poet, Kay had explained the phenomenon of her walking. She and the poet were planning to meet somewhere soon to talk about poems they wanted to write. Kay had told the poet that something occurs in her brain's communication to her limbs that makes walking in rough and unpredictable landscapes easier than over flat, predictable surfaces. Kay said that challenging ground makes movement possible. The poet had told her to write certain phrases down, especially these. If I don't short circuit automaticity, I am lost in a sea of flatness. I can reach you on difficult terrain. So one of the things that I've kind of come round to is that this idea that Kay, you know, some of these things that I'm saying in my own experience, as I'm trying to explain in the day to day, what this experience is like, are the very things that I can do to not just arrest time, to stop time, but to be with time, to be in time, to not be um, the boulder, but to be the leaf flowing around the boulder with the river, holding hands, trembling, moving, still. So all these ideas, I think, are present in what I've been writing, and I think um, hopefully reflective of some of what folks uh, with Parkinson's experience. This this piece is titled Paradoxical Kinesia, and I, th that just gives an account exactly of what it is, but it also questions this relationship between the self and the other and how we what we're trying to do here, which is something that I return to again and again. I think one of the things that I've had to consider is the amount of time I used to spend um, not, you know, taking care of others rather than being taken care of. And I know we've got some experts in the audience on care, but I think when it comes to a young onset condition like Parkinson's that is degenerative, even the word degenerative, um, as I say in the piece uh, in Moving Nowhere Here, um, seems, seems like an odd, an odd um, relationship between being and time. And, uh, you know, I think we're used to doing a lot of things and now we're being asked to think about everything in a completely different way. And um, at least for me, I found that the, the less stable I am as a subject or that I consider myself to be as a subject, the easier it is. And um, that might seem extremely counterintuitive and I'm sure goes against much advice <laughs> from many counselors. Um, but, but for me, um, that's been, that's been useful. 
And when Dante does get to paradise, finally, and he has this, a vision of God, um, which I kind of am taking as not unlike a cure that we might hope, you know, this idea of, um, you know, the five years, the 10 years, the whatever, there's something happens, something, we see something, um, but then we've already seen it, of course, and it's always happening and it's always circular. He says this, ever since then, my vision has been greater than anything we might have to say to each other. I yield to what I saw and memory yields to epithet. As she is sleeping, a seer sees that even after the dream, she is marked with such feeling that nothing else enters her thoughts. Such am I, when my vision nearly ceases, again, my heart distills that sweetness born from what I already saw. And what was interesting with, for me, just to, to finish up and I hope to start taking some questions. Um, what was interesting to me when I was translating this is that the final stanza gets mistranslated a lot. And it, it's as though the um, such am I has to do with, um, I'm like, basically I'm such that my vision gets blocked. And I originally translated that as like, yeah, exactly. Like, that's how I feel. I feel like everything's blocked because that's often, you know, before I started this latest round of meds is how I was feeling, but it's actually not that, or maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, it's such am I, I am like this, the way I'm seeing a seer, which of course I've made a she, but such am I when my vision nearly ceases again, my heart distills that sweetness. I can recycle, I can recycle these feelings of what I've already seen again and again. So one of the things that just to just to wrap up, one of the things that I've been writing about is this idea of care and this idea of how we care for others and how we think about caring for ourselves. And I've tried to do it in this piece without any proper nouns. And I'm taking um, the Agnus Day, which people should be familiar with, and I'm trying to take us towards this idea that of um, a kind of ethics that that relies on some of the sort of um, Embed, embedded kind of deep sense of, of archetypal language, but without um, without belief, without needing to believe that that's so. And I think that that for me in the experience of chronic illness and disability, we're told often to just believe that this is gonna be okay or believe that um, a certain thing is gonna happen or to believe that something might may or may not apply to us. Um, I've often been told, well, you may not have this experience you may find that this does, does or doesn't happen. And, and I, I think that that's, I'm sure that's fine. And I'm sure clinicians may know more, more than me about the, the process of Parkinson's because I'm not there yet. But, um, but for me, I think it's not necessarily helpful to hear it in quite that way. And, the, and that's part of why I'm trying to draw upon some of these paradigms um, from, from the arts and humanities. So I think I'll leave it there and see, see what folks have to respond. I brought in lots of different things, so hopefully something connected. Um, thank you very much. I can't see anything. I'm gonna stop sharing my screen.